On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, the NFL season is here and we've got a special podcast for it. We're going to start with Anthony Booger McFarlane, the first ever on-field analyst in Monday Night Football's history, and he's got some surprises in store for the coming season. And then we'll be joined by the 49ers Pro Bowl cornerback Richard Sherman, who's got some strong opinions on some very important and significant NFL issues. But before we get to a preview of the NFL season, let's take a review of some of the events that have transpired over the last week in what had to be the single busiest week leading into an NFL season that we've seen in recent memory. Usually, there's one or two stories. There are all the cuts, 32 teams making all those cuts, freeing up 1,184 players. But this was a different week. This was a week in which we had, and I start, Odell Beckham kicking it off, signing a record deal. Michael Kendricks, the Browns linebacker, getting indicted for insider trading and then released the same day by the Cleveland Browns. We saw Aaron Rodgers sign the richest deal ever given to an NFL player. We saw Teddy Bridgewater traded to the New Orleans Saints from the New York Jets. We saw Rob Gronkowski get a reworked contract. We saw on Friday afternoon Aaron Donald sign a record deal with the Los Angeles Rams, the richest deal ever given to a defensive player. And that set in motion the chain of events that unfolded over the weekend. Because the truth of the matter is, from the moment that Aaron Donald signed that deal, it became a sealed deal that the Oakland Raiders were going to be moving on from Khalil Mack. Because the truth of the matter is, the Raiders never were intent on paying Khalil Mack top dollar. And once Aaron Donald got the record-setting contract that he did with $87 million in guaranteed money, with an annual salary average of $22.5 million, John Gruden and the Oakland Raiders never were going to pay that level of money for Khalil Mack. And once that deal hit the books, the calls got fast and furious with the Oakland Raiders and their front office. And the calls started pouring in from all the teams who had been tracking Khalil Mack all summer long, making calls with the Raiders on a weekly basis, staying on top of the situation. But the Raiders all along had told teams, we are not trading Khalil Mack. We are not interested. We're not listening to your offers. We're not taking your calls. And then something changed. The Donald contract came in and John Gruden came to the realization that Khalil Mack would not be reporting to the Raiders anytime soon. We already knew that he liked Khalil Mack, but he didn't love Khalil Mack enough to pay him. And so the Raiders were on the phone throughout the day, Wednesday, Thursday, and then officially again on Friday when it became apparent they were going to trade him. Now, there were teams that thought on Thursday that he would be dealt because in talking with one organization, they said the real sense that they're getting is that Gruden is moving on. And he was talking to a bunch of teams at that time, trying to field offers, solicit offers. And as the weekend went on, the offers started coming where Gruden was bouncing one off another. And here's what happened. On Friday, I was moving my son into college at the University of Michigan, freshman dorm, moving in, go to the airport that night, and I'm sitting on the plane, and I get a call from one general manager who says, John Gruden is absolutely trading Khalil Mack 
Get ready. It's coming up here very soon, next 24 hours. Get a call from another executive. I say, are you hearing 24 hours on Khalil Mack? 100% gone? And this guy goes, well, I'd say 60-40 they're trading Mack, which was not as strong as the first GM. And then a third GM weighs in, and he said, oh, he's gone. Having talked to that team, there is no way that they are keeping him. They are trading Khalil Mack. And so Friday night, as I'm sitting in Detroit waiting to taxi on my plane, speaking to three GMs, thankfully for my half-hour plane delay. That's one time you are happy you get a plane delay. Of those three GMs, two were 100% convinced that Gruden was trading Mac. One was 60% sure. So it became apparent that this deal was going down and it was in the works. And I would say early that morning, roughly 2.30 a.m. or so, the Bears, I think, cemented their agreement with the Oakland Raiders. And they cemented the agreement, and part of that agreement was that the Bears were given until midnight on Saturday, midnight Saturday night, 11.59, to get a new contract done with Khalil Mack. And so word breaks Saturday morning on ESPN that the Bears and Raiders have an agreement in place to trade for Khalil Mack. And that's exactly what winds up happening. Because the truth of the matter is, once that comes out, the Bears have been charting Khalil Mack all summer long, dying to get him, so anxious to get him. And there's no way you could agree to a deal with the Raiders and then have it held up by not getting a deal done with Khalil Mack. And so really, it was only a matter of time before those two sides get an extension worked out. And they did. Khalil Mack and the Bears reached agreement on a record-setting six-year, $141 million contract, $23.5 million per year, $90 million guaranteed, $60 million due at signing. And the Raiders got back a first-round pick in 2019, a first-round pick in 2020, a 2020 third-round pick, and a 2019 sixth-round pick. So they got a bevy of picks, but they also gave up Mac, a 2020 second-round pick, and a 2020 fifth-round pick conditionally. So it was a huge deal. That capped a huge week, the kind of week that I would venture to say we may never have seen the week before in opening week. Always a lot of moves, never the types of significant moves that we saw last week. And with that, we're going to start this week's podcast with Anthony Booger McFarlane, who will make some history of his own Monday night when he works the Rams Raiders Monday night game. Booger! Shafty, what's up, buddy? You know, I got to tell you this. When Josh Macri, my producer, reached out to you, he said, you told him, have Shefty call me. He's my number. I got to tell you, I did not have your number. Hey, well, make sure you have it now. <laughs> I just think that makes you a man of importance, that I didn't have your number, that you were so far above that that I couldn't even reach you, that I had to go through special channels <laughs> to get a hold of you. Oh, I love it. <laughs> So, Booger, I got to tell you something. You're a historical figure now. Historical. Do you know that? Why is that? Because of what we're doing on, on Monday night? Well, you are going to be Monday Night Football's first ever, ever on-field analyst. Like, we've never had that. We've never seen that. Howard Cosell didn't have anybody on the field serving him as an on-field analyst. Al Michaels didn't have any. Like, nobody 
has ever had that. So you now can stake the claim of being the first ever on-field analyst. It's kind of fun, Chef. You know, you get uh, some creative minds together with uh, Jay Rosman and Chip Dean and his team and, and everybody just started putting their heads together because our entire goal throughout this process was, you know, management wanted kind of the, the field level aspect with what they've done at college football with, with, with McShay and Luganville. And, you know, Chip and Jay went together. Well, how can we do that but also make Booger a seamless part of the booth because we want a three-man conversation. You know, we want this to be, uh, you know, not going down to the field or throwing the Booger because we want this to be seamless. And, you know, all in all, I think they came up with an outstanding plan. Like this, this Booger mobile is uh, it's, it's pretty neat. I didn't know how high it was going to be until I got up in it. Like they said, you're going to have like this card. I'm like, okay, I can climb up on a couple steps. No, you got to get up on this thing, and then it goes 10 feet in the air, and the technology that's up there is, is just amazing. So I, I got to give a big shout-out to Jay Rothman and Chip Dean just for their vision of, of seeing where this could go and also uh, allowing our three-man team to have seamless conversation. The Booger Mobile. Now think about that. Again, we talked about you being a historical figure. There's the Pope Mobile and the Booger Mobile. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, I feel that if we're going to name it, I may as well put my name in it. You know, some people have, have tried to come up with different names and sponsorships, so I'm just going to put my name into it. And I kind of think that that gives me some type of rights. That way, if ESPN wants to sell it to a company, then I need to get a little piece of it somehow. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Like, you could get sponsorships on the side of the Boogermobile, right? Like, I mean, come on. we got to get shirts going for the Boogermobile, sponsorships for the Boogermobile. There's a lot of possibilities and potential for the Boogermobile. Uh, you know what? I, I think it'll be fun because it, it's new. It's different. It's something that, you know, football has never seen before. And, and you know, some people look at it, and, 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 of course, they say, well, this is a gimmick. And, you know, as, as somebody who's been up there twice, here's what I'll tell you. Uh, it, it's a different perspective, you know, especially once the ball goes inside the 30s and that card is literally uh, – three feet from the field, and you get to see the, the signals, the, the, the conversation, the nonverbals between the DBs that's often not picked up on camera. And then when the, when the car's behind the bench, you get to see the conversation. I'll give you a prime example. The other night in between Baltimore and Indy, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there watching the Indy offensive line coach in between plays while the defense is on the field, and he is just chewing his offensive line out. And, like, those are some of the things that you don't necessarily see on camera. Mm-hmm. And then the following possession, you see the offensive line go out there and some of the same things that they were implementing on the sideline were coming to life on the field. So those are just some of the little nuances that you get a chance to see uh, that's been fun so far. And we're only two games in, so I'm pretty sure there's a lot more that we're going to learn. Did you actually have to be fitted for the Booger Mobile? Yeah, we went out to L.A., and when I got out there, they said, yeah, you know, we want you to come to L.A., and I'm like, for what? I was like, yeah, we want to custom fit this thing. That's when I started having questions about exactly what we were doing because <laughs> it had been explained, but no one had ever kind of went through the concept of actually drawing it up. So when I got to L.A., uh, out to Chapman, which is the name of the company, mm-hmm. and, and they had a mock-up of it done, I kind of like, okay, and they were like, yeah, let's let's take it outside. And so we roll this thing outside, and they're like, okay, we're going to rise it up in the air. And that's when my eyes kind of opened up because they took it up 10 feet in the air. And as we were 10 feet in the air, 
me and the designers just started having conversations. They were like, well, what do you like? What do you don't like? So we changed the seat. We made the seat a little bigger, a little bit more cushiony, a little bit more comfortable. We changed some of the technology because I'm not a push-button guy because I think that when you have to push a button to do something and continue to hold that button, that's, that's eventually going to get old. So we changed all our controls from push buttons to switches where you have an on and off switch. I think we're more capable of doing that. I'm right-handed, so I wanted everything on the right side that was important. Things that were not important, I wanted them on, on the uh, left side. Uh, the monitor, I needed a little bigger just because I needed to be able to see uh, four or five different angles. So in my monitor, it's actually four monitors in one. So I have four screens that are probably, I don't know, they're about 20-inch screens when you look at them, but they're all built in one monitor. And so I have the actual game feed that people see at home. Mm-hmm. In the right corner, I have a, 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 a FaceTime-like view of Joe and Jason, so I can see them, and, and it's so clear. Like, I can see that the hairs on, on, on Tess's nose. That's how clear it is. Mm-hmm. So anytime they make movements or gestures, I can see them, which allows our nonverbal communication to be pretty seamless. In the bottom right corner, I have an all-22 version. So if there's an angle that I can't see from my perch on the bookmobile, and I can look at the R22, and then we have next-gen stats in the bottom left corner, which basically takes away the need for binoculars uh, from the booth to wherever you are because next-gen with the chips and the helmets, as soon as players step on the field, it automatically updates. So I know who's on the field at all times. That is unbelievable. So we're sitting in a custom-made extra cushion chair 10 feet above the game with four different screens giving you everything that you could ever want do you have a little refrigerator up there, too? Because if you have that, then you may never have to come down. Well, I don't have a refrigerator, but what I have is two cup holders, and I like drinking unsweetened tea. So on my left is my unsweetened tea uh, that I uh, put a little stevia in to kind of give it a little sweetener. And then on my right is my water. To the left of the iced tea is my USB uh, charger. So my iPhone has a, has a charger and its own little slot. So... Uh, I really don't need to come down until halftime. I, I try to take the, you know, the potty breaks before, uh, before the game. So usually I don't have to come down until halftime. I gotta get one of these things for me and Mort for Sunday countdown. <laughs> I mean, hey, I man, feel it'll be fun. You know, uh, you should come out to the field one time and, and take a look at it. I, I'm, I'm sure at some point you, you know, we'll cross paths and we'll meet up on Monday night. You got to get up in this thing, man. It's unreal. That's incredible. So then after the game ends and the opening Monday night game, you'll be doing the Raiders and the Rams. Will somebody then trans obviously transports that device on a truck to the next Monday night football game and so on and so forth to the next and the next? Yeah, you know, like that's been the neat thing about Monday night football so far. I had no idea how much um, how much uh, logistical preparation went into it and how many people it took. Like, this outfit has about six 18-wheelers that travel site to site. So, basically, once the game ends, they will lower it down. They'll load it up on one of these 18-wheelers, and they'll uh, transport it to the next site. And I think right now it's currently in, if I'm not mistaken, it's in Pittsburgh, which is where the 18-wheelers are staged at. And I think that probably um, the latter part of next week, they'll take off to Oakland. And when we get to Oakland, it'll be set up. The NFL loves it. Like, that was one of the things that we were worried about is whether or not the NFL was going to sign off on it because, obviously, 
it's 10 feet in the air. Uh, there's a screen on the back of it uh, trying to help the fans with their view, but it's, it's going to block some people's view. And so the NFL came out the first week, and we were kind of nervous, and they were like, we love it. I mean, the NFL was like, we think this is cutting edge. Uh, our president, Jimmy Paterno, uh really praised it, talking about the innovation that we're, we're doing. And, you know, you know, for me, it's just an opportunity to call a game from a unique point of view, uh, especially now transitioning from college to the NFL. Like, that's been the fun part about it. Like, all this stuff has been new, the new team, uh, the new sport, uh, the new vision, and it's really made it a lot of fun, man. So uh, it's going to be transported around the country in one of these 18-wheelers, and, you know, hopefully if, if you see my face driving down the highway, you just kind of toot your horn let the drivers know that, that you approve of the bookmobile. So there is a screen on the back of the bookmobile so that fans who are blocked by the chair can see the game. Is that accurate? Yes. Uh, yes, there is a – I think it's a – I want to say it's a 50 – two-inch monitor that's located wow. on the back of the mobile. And it serves two purposes, and you'll like this. The first purpose is that way the fans that are blocked always have a live feed of the game. So if you can't see the game uh, from your seat, you look at the screen and you'll see what's going on. That's purpose number one. Yep. Purpose number two is it gives me a little bit of a shield just in case fans are angry. They don't throw anything at my head. So I kind of got a little protection built in. <laughs> You know what, Brian Greasy, I had him on the podcast last week, and he said that he warned you about angry fans throwing bottles at your head for blocking their view. But I didn't know that there was a screen that they could get a great view of the game and watch it even though you're blocking their view. There's a lot to this Boogermobile, more than I thought. Well, you know, it, 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 it's more than, you know, some people have uh, been to the crane. Yeah, it's more than a crane. It's more than a perch. It, it's actually uh, innovation at its finest. Uh, a lot of hard work and a lot of man hours put in by a lot of good people. So uh, it's fun, man. You, you have to take a look at some of the uh, some of the photos. You know, if I had your number and I realize you're important, I would send you some of these photos. And let you take a look at it. But I, I haven't reached the level of importance where I can get one of the seven cell phone numbers that you have. Could, well, you'll be getting that. That's not an issue. And listen, now that I have your number, which I've never had because you're too big time, you'll get my number and we'll have our numbers, and that'll be a nice thing. But could you see the Boogermobile being a wave of the future that they're doing all games in the future with Boogermobiles? Well, you know, Chef, I, I think it's something that people are going to kind of see what does it bring. And, 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 you know, is it bringing something extra? Uh, is it giving a different point of view? And, and, I, and I think how that's handled throughout the season this year, mm -hmm. uh, people are going to pay close attention to what we do, how we integrate it, what new and, and fascinating stuff that we can bring from the mobile. And, and I think if we prove that it's good enough, it definitely could be the wave of the future. But I, I think people are fascinated by it. I think people look at it um, as, as, as cutting edge. And I think now they just want to see what are going to be the fruits of all this, uh, all this labor, all this hard work that you guys have put in, and, and, and how is it going to pay dividends to the fans and the viewer? Because that's our ultimate goal, is how can we serve and satisfy the appetite of all the NFL fans, what can we bring them that they can't get just from sitting on their couch watching one of the 32 or 35 cameras that we employ every Monday night? Do you have any memories of watching Monday Night Football as a kid? I do, Sheppy. And, you know, as a kid, you know, you sit there and you know that football comes on. It's on Saturday, it's on Sunday, it's on Monday. Because when I was growing up, 
it, it never came on Thursday. Like, Thursday wasn't a big deal. So it was always Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And, you know, I started to get into football probably when I was, like, 13. That's when I first started playing. And from 13 until 30, it became a staple. And obviously, when you play the National Football League, uh, you know Monday night's a special night because of, of the history of Monday night and in the NFL circles. Monday night has been special. It's still special. And I think it's always going to be special because of what it means to the players. Now, fans have kind of been lukewarm off and on based on the matchups. And I get that. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But as a player, Monday night is always special. And, and I'll tell you this, Shepton, when I stopped playing, um, there was a, a level of anticipation and a, a level of chill that went on in your body when you ran out of the tunnel. Like, the, the hair stood up on my arms when that introductory was made and you ran out of the tunnel. And I thought I'd never get that again. And I got to tell you, you know, wow. standing on the field pregame and sitting up in the bookmobile pregame and the producer's in your ear and they're saying, all right, guys, we got 15 seconds. And you're sitting there and you're like, okay, let's get this going. And you hear that music, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. For the first time since I stopped playing almost what, 11 years ago, the hair stood up on my arms. And it was an amazing feeling. And I never thought I'd get that feeling again. And that just shows you how much Monday night means. That a guy that hadn't played in 11 years, who's watched Monday night football for a long time, who had an experience playing that he thought that wouldn't be matched ever again. And the first time we had our game Thursday, Jets and Redskins, and that music came on, the hell stood up on my arms. And that was a really, really cool feeling. Yeah, I'll tell you something. In my broadcasting career, to put that in perspective, what you're saying, the first time that I ever did Sports Reporters, which was a show that I watched all through college as a newspaper guy, the first time that I ever did it and had to do a parting shot, I've never had this happen to me, ever, and I don't think it ever will. I could feel, before doing that parting shot in front of Mitch Album and Mike Lupica and John Saunders, I could feel the adrenaline, I could feel my blood pulsating from my toes to my brain throughout my entire body. It was the wow. most incredible thing that I've ever experienced. And then it happened one other time when I was working sidelines for John Madden and Al Michaels, which I had the honor of doing twice. I would say it would have been a year or two before I got to ESPN. So in 2007, 2008, right around there, they had me do the Hall of Fame game for them. And when they were, when Al Michaels was throwing to me on the sideline, <laughs> and I had to throw back to him and John Madden, that same type of feeling where I could feel my heart pounding out of my chest. Never has happened to me in my five years working for NFL Network. I don't think it's happened once in my nine years at ESPN. But there are certain moments where it is so big to you personally, and it means so much that you could feel it in your body. And you may have that once or twice in your career. So the fact that you felt that from Monday Night Football tells me how important the job is to you how great your understanding of the broadcast and its history are. And I think that's awesome that you, that you could feel that, Booger. Yeah, it's been fun, Shep. And, and, and to get here, you know, if, if you just look at how we got here, uh, it's it's 2018. Uh, in, in 2014, I just got hired by the SEC Network. And to go from, you know, covering SEC football to Monday Night Football in four years is, is, is something that's really amazing. But on top of that, I'll give you another little nugget. When we opened Thursday night uh, with the Redskins and Jets, mm-hmm. 
here I am, part of a broadcast team doing Monday Night Football. That was only my fifth game I've ever called in the history of football. So that's college, uh, high school, whatever. So to have your fifth game that you've ever called be Monday Night Football, I, I just pinch myself because not a lot of people get the opportunity. Not a lot of people can say that because normally it's one of those things that you, you either got to go through uh, the ups and downs and, and working tons of games, or you know you're going to be a guy who's a who's a Hall of Fame player or, or a Hall of Fame coach like like a Whitney or Gruden, and you get the opportunity because you know your accolades precede you and, and, and they merit that. But for a guy who was just a who was just a nose guard and played next to Sapp and Brooks and all those guys to to go from uh, four years of, of of doing you know studio work to to being on Monday Night Football, it's one of those things, man, that I kind of. I kind of pinch myself, and to your point, I, I really take pride in it because it, it's something that I realize the people that have come before me, I realize that the opportunity that I've been given is not given to a lot of people, and I, and I know a lot of people are counting on not only myself, but, but Whitten and Tessator and Lisa to do a good job because it's one of the biggest things that our company, and I think when you, when you realize it that way, that it's more people counting on you and us to do a good job than just yourself. I think there's a great level of responsibility because it's a huge thing for our company. And if we're successful, that means our company's successful. And if that happens, then I think everyone will, will enjoy the fruits of our labor. It's amazing. You know, you look back at that Buccaneer defense that you were a part of and people that don't know you played with the Buccaneers from 1999 to 2006. You won a Super Bowl with the Buccaneers in the 2002 season. Uh, you had 22 and a half sacks in 109 games in your NFL career before you were traded to the Colts in 2000. Six, but you go back to that Tampa defense. There's Warren Sapp, the outspoken, opinionated, colorful guy that he is. There's the eloquent, articulate, intelligent, great Derek Brooks playing linebacker. And John Lynch in the secondary, whose father owns a chain of radio stations and is almost a Hall of Fame player in his own right, now the GM of the 49ers. If you would have said there's a player on this Buccaneers defense that's going to be calling Monday night football games, how many people would have thought it would have been Booker McFarland? <laughs> Not many. <laughs> because, you know, but most people would have thought it, uh, would have thought South just because of his, his personality and his ability to be very outgoing and, and, and just to kind of call it like it is. And it, it's amazing that playing on that defense, that there are a lot of uh, guys that influence me. You know, people often look at me and, and they say, well, man, speak your mind and, and say things as you, as you see them. I said, well, you don't know one Sapp long enough. That's all he does. Yeah. And so I, I, I can honestly credit Sapp just for uh, allowing me to understand that, you know what, like, just cut through, man. Like, you, you don't have to go around in circles. If it's black, call it black. If it's white, call it white. And, and, and I think that comes from hanging around him because, boy, did he do that every day. You know, you look at a guy like Derek Brooks, just how he carries himself, being humble, realizing that it's about the team. It's not all about you. You know, nothing – Nothing you're doing is, is, is on your own doing. You have to have people around you to help you. And, and he taught me that when I first got there because the defense was, was really good, but we couldn't win until we got all the pieces. And, you know, you a guy like Rondé Barber, who's a quiet assassin. Sometimes, sometimes you got to be quiet. Sometimes you just got to go out and do your job and not say a lot. And, and to be around all those guys, we were all molded by Tony Dungy, who, who is still – a really, really good friend of mine who I still talk to, just to know about how to go out and live and be a man. And, and I think when, when, when the, the combination of all those things come together, 
there are a lot of people on that team that were touched. Um, some of them are in the media, some are not. But I, but I think that was a special group just because we had so many different personalities. We had so many different guys uh, of, of all different talent levels. And I think when it's all said and done, we'll look back. You're going to have your Hall of Famers on the football field. You're going to have guys that have successful businesses. You're going to have guys that were successful in the media. And all those things we should have seen coming, but we were so young and focused on trying to win. That's one of the neat things about being a part of a team, especially when you're young. So for all these people who aspire to break into broadcasting and become any kind of broadcaster, what advice would you give to them being that you've had this meteoric rise joining ESPN in 2014 as a commentator for the SEC Network and now all of a sudden, four years later, being the first ever on-field analyst in Monday Night Football history? What I would tell them, Shefty, is um, take advantage of your opportunities and just continue to get reps. Um, I was literally, when I retired, I got married, started a family, uh, started having kids. i got two kids now. My kids are, my daughter will be 11 in November. My son is seven now. Mm. And, and so, you know, you, you start doing something. And, and I'm finally like, okay, I, I can't just sit at home and play golf. And, yeah, I want to be a great dad, but I want to do something. And so I got a call one day from a buddy of mine and says, hey, we're starting a local radio station here in Tampa. Would you like to come and check it out? And at that point, I kind of thought, yeah, I mean, local radio, talking about the Bucks and the Rays and the Lightning, that's probably kind of boring. But you know what? It was an opportunity for me, and I took advantage of it. And so my advice would just be take advantage of the opportunity, get as many reps as you can, and never, ever, ever think that something can't be for you. Because if you would have asked me when I was 12 or 13 years old, would I be uh, talking on TV or, or analyzing football or, or being somebody who is being in front of the camera, I would have told you no. Because I was a shy little fat kid with the Afro at Winsboro High School who didn't want to talk to anyone, didn't want to go talk to the girls, was kind of uh, kind of standoffish a little bit. And now here we are. I mean, it, it just goes to show you <laughs> how, how sometimes that thing that you couldn't dream that are for you could be some of the best things that happened to you in your life. And just never close any doors because I learned it the hard way even with this whole Monday Night Football thing. When I got asked to audition for Monday Night Football, uh, yes, I willingly did it. In the back of my mind, I'm not really sure I was confident I would get it. But it's one of those opportunities that you get that you don't turn down. But if you if you would have said, how much money are you going to bet that you get the job, I probably wouldn't have bet a substantial amount. Yeah. But here we are. And, you know, you believe in yourself, you work hard, and just take advantage of the opportunities that you get. About a couple of things before we wrap up, and I really want to thank you for the time today, Booger. I really do appreciate you. You've been great. And I wish you and your crew all the luck in the world as the season opens Monday night with the Rams and the Raiders. But is this true that you got the nickname Booger from your mother when you were two years old because you were a bad kid? What could you have been doing at two that you were so bad that you got a nickname that would stick with you for the rest of your life? Well, yes, that, that is true, first of all. And it's not just what I did at two, it's what I continue to do. So when you grow up in, in the country, in rural areas of, of America, uh, everyone has nicknames. My, my brother's nickname is Catfish. My sister's nickname, uh, her nickname is Treetop. She's a little tall. Uh, they call her Treetop. My brother, I still haven't, uh, all these years, I still haven't understood why his friends called him Catfish, and I, I kind of gave up on that. But as, as far as me, at two, I was just bad. Like, I would, like, roll over vases and knock stuff down. 
Of course, as a two-year-old kid, you've always heard of the terrible two, so I, I was the epitome of that. And the older I got, the worse it, uh, worse it became. And I got called other things besides booger. I'm not going to say those on this podcast, but I got called other things also. <laughs> I have a sister that's six years older than me. And so as I'm getting older, three, four, five, now she is, you know, uh, uh, what, what that make her, 1911 now. Yep. And so she started teasing me with that name, Booger, because it's one of the few names that I was called that she could say and not get in trouble. And so the more friends heard it, the more they kept spreading it. And I went to high school, and of course, when you live in a small town, about 3,500 people, everyone knows everyone. So the announcer at the games would call me Booger, and it would just bother the heck out of me. And as I signed my scholarship at LSU, I was playing football, and I'm like, okay, now I can become Anthony again. So I get down to LSU, and our first home game, I make a tackle, and the announcer says, tackle by Booger McFarlane. And I turn and I'm like, how in the heck did he find this out? And at that point, I said, you know what? I've tried to run from it, and I can't run from it any longer, so I just accepted it. Now it's been uh, Booger ever since to the point that when I got hired at ESPN, it was an actual conversation. Hey, do you want to go by Anthony or Booger? I said, here's what I'll tell you. People that call me Anthony, I usually don't answer. Wow. They were like, okay, enough said. Wow. Wow. You, do you consider changing your name legally to Booger? Do, is there any need no, to do I, I don't think I need to change it because my mother named me Anthony. I'm always going to keep that. But, yeah. you know, I go by Booger. Uh, my driver's license has Anthony on it, and, and I'm always going to keep that out of respect for her. But more people know me by Booger than Anthony. Uh, some people, most people are comfortable with it. You, you run into a few people. Some producers, I'm not going to name any, that may not be comfortable fonting it on the screen, if you know what I mean. But uh, hopefully they hopefully they not comfortable with that by now. <laughs> and we're about to open the season, the 2018 season. Give me your Super Bowl prediction for which two teams will wind up in Atlanta in February. Wow. Uh, out of the AFC, I'm going to go with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Hmm. Out of the NFC, I'm going to go with the Philadelphia Eagles. Jacksonville, Philadelphia. Yeah, I just think that uh, Jacksonville is young. I, I, I think they tasted a little bit of success last year. Um, bringing Blake Borders back, in my opinion, is going to help them. Here's why. They know what they have, and his teammates believe in him. And I think Blake's confidence that he got last year in that playoff run is going to catapult him to a lot of success this year. Hmm. He's not the sexy name, and people have kind of dogged his name in the media and some of his play over the last couple of years. But sometimes it just clicks, man. And sometimes it's amazing when you have confidence in yourself. And I think that playoff run, especially how he played in Foxborough going head-to-head with Tom Brady, I think is going to catapult him to a lot of success this year. Now, that defense is still going to have to carry the team because that's what they're built on. When you have two of the top corners in football, you have so much invested in that defensive line and those young linebackers, that defense has still got to be dominant. But Blake just has to be Blake and do enough. As far as on the other side, when you look at the Philadelphia Eagles, I just think they have one of the more talented rosters in football. Carson Wentz has a lot to prove. Uh, they won the Super Bowl, but arguably their best player felt like he didn't contribute. Mm-hmm. That's a motivated man. And when you look at a guy who's as motivated and as talented as Carson Wentz, to go along with some of the weapons that they have now. And to me, the secret sauce in Philadelphia is Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson is Tony Dungy from an offensive perspective. Mild manner, man of faith, paid his dues. Nothing was given to him. He worked his way up. He believes in his players. 
Uh, he's a little riskier than Tony, which I like, but I think he's the secret sauce in Philadelphia because Doug Peterson, what he did last year, the confidence he showed in his players was really repaid back by how his players paid. I think Frank Reich is another guy who, uh, although I think Indianapolis is going to struggle this year, look for them in the next three, four years to make a move because of Frank Reich. I think coaching is one of the things in our league that if, if you get the right guy, then your team can make leaps and bounds. Look at the L.A. Rams when they got McVay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, look at the Eagles. I think the coach will make a jump in a few years. You need to get the right guy. That's why I think that's the most important thing. And if you don't get the right guy, you, you find a guy you got and you go get, go get another guy. But I think it's going to be uh, Eagles and Jaguars. Well, Booger, I want to thank you very much. Truly appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck this year. We'll be tuned in to watch the Booger Mobile, Joe Tess, Jason Witten, Lisa Salters, and your entire crew in Monday Night Football. I thank you very much, Booger. Appreciate it, Shifter. Thanks, buddy. I think I've made it now. I made it to the Shifter podcast. <laughs> I've made it by getting you, and you'll have my own phone number here very soon. All right. Thanks, buddy. We'll be back in a moment with 49ers cornerback Richard Sherman. But first, a word from DraftKings. Football season's here, and huge cash prizes are up for grabs at DraftKings, the leader in one-week fantasy sports. DraftKings is hosting a fantasy football contest this weekend with $2 million up for grabs, and it's free to enter with your first deposit. Get the app or go to DraftKings.com now and use code SHEFTER to play for free with your first deposit in the play-action contest this weekend. That's code Schefter to play for your share of $2 million. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. After a star-studded run in Seattle where he was a fixture in the Legion of Boom, Richard Sherman signed with the San Francisco 49ers this offseason. This Sunday, he gets ready to take on the Minnesota Vikings in his first game as a 49ers cornerback. Recently, we caught up with Richard Sherman. We have a new team, a new quarterback, new tackling rules, lots of new changes as the season gets ready to kick off here. What has been your reaction to being in a whole new environment with a new team? What's that been like, that transition process going from Seattle to San Francisco? It's been really fun, actually. You know, it's been fun. It's a fun challenge, just acclimating. Uh, my kids love it. Uh, my wife loves it. She loves the neighborhood and uh, the weather, obviously. But um, <laughs> it's fun having a young team. You know, they're fun. They're energetic all the time. Um, obviously, Kyle's way of coaching is, is very deliberate and very detailed, and I, think, I really appreciate that. Um, it's been It's been an incredibly fun ride so far. But, Richard, people don't realize – I think as we get on in life, you're 30 years old now. I remember making job changes. How much there is involved in changing employers from one to another, from family to work life to learning everything else, has that surprised you, everything that goes into it? No, it didn't surprise me because I kind of I saw, you know, I saw that I was going to have to do that and had teammates who had to make that change and, um, but there, there is a ton to it. You know, you got to get one house situated. You got to get your other house situated. You got to get your family moved, new schools, new bills, cars um, sent over, the paperwork done to get the 
the cars changed over, the licenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, you switch states, the laws are different in, in regards to, to your, you know, how you can manage where you're staying and the tax implications, obviously. It's, it's yeah. time that goes into it. Is there a difference in how you're perceived from one organization to another? The Legion of Boom was legendary in Seattle, always will be. But when you go into San Francisco, these guys view you as this franchise leader to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I just go in and do my job, honestly. You know, they, the front office, Kyle, John, they don't put any pressure on me to do anything different. I just go up there and, and be who I've always been. What has Jimmy Garoppolo shown you in the weeks that you've gotten to now play with him? He's very poised, um, very accurate on time, uh, does a great job in the pocket just manipulating uh, the protections and, and understanding how defenses are, are blitzing and attacking him. Um, I've been very impressed with, with how down earth he is. He's, he's been great with our guys and a great leader on our team. And there's also new tackling rules this year, Richard. You've not been shy about sharing your opinion. How do you think that's going to shake out once the season begins? I have no idea. Um, you know, everybody thinks it's going to be just like everything else. You know, like all the, you know, every other emphasis, the pass interference, the illegal contact, et cetera, et cetera. But those were already rules. You know, you can you can change that. That's not. This is fundamental. These are this this rule is a fundamental change to the game and an impossible fundamental change. Um, so I I have no idea how they're they're gonna call it or, or police it or, but no matter how they do it, it'll it'll ruin the game. First call that that they make a illegal you know, leading with the head or whatever the rule is, um, is, is, is going to start to deteriorate, I guess. How much will that be on defensive players' minds as you're going to make a tackle? Can it even be on your mind as you're going to make a tackle? No, I, it, it won't be on mine at all. Um, <laughs> I'll tackle like, like I've always tackled. Um, I, don't think, I don't think guys will think about it at all. And, you know, you'll just have to take the penalties as they come. I'm sure they'll be arbitrary and, and you know, Two, two tackles that look exactly the same will be called two different ways. So um, you can't let that wear on your mind. I've actually watched preseason games this summer where it has looked to me like that rule has been on the minds of certain defensive players as they go to bring down the guy that they're covering or tackling. Is that possible? That's definitely possible. You know, younger guys in this game, you know, they're just trying to do things by the book, trying not to get penalized. You know, veterans are just going to, going to play fast and let the chips fall where they may. You know, guys aren't going to intentionally hit a guy with a helmet if they can help it, but the game's moving really fast, and guys are just trying, trying to get guys to the ground. Richard, what do you think your emotions will be like when the 49ers play in Seattle on December 2nd? Um, I, I don't know. I think it'll be just like another game for me. Um, it'll be good to see some model teammates and, and be back in the city, but I don't think it'll be any different for me. Will we see Earl Thomas by then? Uh, I, I, I would I would believe so. I mean, unless they let him go somewhere else. Because um, at that point, um, he'd have to show up so that his contract doesn't toll. I definitely think he'll he'll show up at some point. I, I don't know what point that'll be. But, um, you know, I don't see him waiting it out and letting his contract toll for another year. I don't think um, his agents would advise him to, to do that. And I know he wouldn't want to be under contract again. 
Richard, your mother Beverly worked with disabled inner city children, and your father Kevin was, or maybe still is, a garbage truck driver whose day began at 345. How has your parents' work ethic shaped the man that you are today? It's been a, a huge impacting force on my life and, and who I've become. Um, it's humble beginnings, obviously. You know, my dad, for 28 years, 30 years, driving a trash truck, you know, it's not the most glorious job in the world. Um, my parents just instilled hard work and dedication and perseverance and, you know, not to make excuses. You know, things need to get done. The bills need to get paid, and you show up to work every day and do it. You ever go on a garbage truck run with your dad? I did. I did. I've, I've gone on, on my fair share, and um, it, it, I could not fit to see myself sitting in there for, you know, 365 days a year just rolling around for, for 28 years. But I'm thankful he did it. You know, it gave me a chance, and now he's retired. What was the lesson that you learned riding around with him? Um, that you just, uh, job's a job, you know, as it, you know, it may not be the glorious thing in the world, but, you know, you just work through it. You set your mind to do something. His goal, um, was to retire at a certain time and, and make sure his pension was going to be what it needed to be and everything was going to be in order. And he, he, he set those goals and he accomplished them. And every day, that's all he kept his mind on is that he has to fly for his family. And that's, hmm. that's what I always keep at the forefront. Now, Richard, since 2014, you've served as one of the NFLPA's vice presidents. And as you know, a few years from now, the collective bargaining agreement will come up to be renewed. How do you foresee that unfolding in the years to come? Um, that's a great question. Uh, it, 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 it's hard to predict. You know, because our side and, and the other side have to agree on certain things, and, and there has to be um, some level-headed discussions. But I think that the player side is definitely more prepared um, for work, potential work stoppage this time around. Um, I think we have more contingency plans in place. Um, our players are more informed. Um, the process is more transparent, and you know, I think we we really have keyed what we're going to be looking for in these negotiations. What kind of plans are in place for something like that down the line that are different than other plans that have been in place in other years? Well, it's just, it's just certain, certain ways guys are managing money, certain uh, funds that have been, been withheld to, to allow guys to uh, really be protected during that time. Um, but we can't obviously give away all our secrets now. Yeah. Or, you know, well, we're a few... We're a few years out, and it's impossible to say, but how realistic is it that we could be looking at a work stoppage in a few years once the CBA expires? Oh, it's, it's, really, it's incredibly realistic. Um, if, if the owners and the players can't come to an agreement the same way we didn't come to an agreement the last at the um, end of the last CBA, um, there would definitely be a work stoppage. I'm sure the, the owners will lock the gates, and um, unfortunately they'll – you know, we'll have to figure something out. But uh, I think that that that's what we're planning for. We're planning, that's worst-case scenario, obviously, but that's what we're planning for because that's what's happened in the past. You know what's interesting about that? You hear a lot of conversation about players having to take back power from Roger Goodell. And that may be one of the things that you guys pursue. 
But I also think one of the biggest things that you need to do in the next CBA is go back to these rookie contracts that were affected the last time when a fifth-year option was added on. Because it's become very difficult for a number of these rookies to get the deal that they deserve way in advance of when they should. And a guy could have to play five years and be tagged one or two more years. So literally, a guy could play seven years before he hits true unrestricted free agency. Where would the fifth-year option fall on the list of priorities for the NFLPA in your eyes, Richard? Um, it's, it's definitely up there. You know, obviously there there are things that, that are above that, but rookie wage scale is something that we're definitely focusing on. Um, we're looking at a number of options, a number of things that we can, can do to protect our players, whether it's a fourth-year option instead of a fifth or, or you know, depending on if a player has, has – made the Pro Bowl or, or All-Pro or something like that, being able to, to, to kind of make that fourth or fifth year a player option instead of a team option. Um, and so, you know, like I said before, there, there's going to be a ton of, ton of discussions and a ton of back and forth, and, and but that is definitely something we're, we're, we're looking forward to, to gaining some ground on and, and gaining some clarity because the rookies obviously have been punished uh, a lot, of, especially the first-rounders. Last thing I want to ask you, Richard, the season is kicking off, getting ready for it to open here. What kind of season is it going to be for the San Francisco 49ers? I think we're going to have a really good season. Um, God willing that we get through it healthy um, and, and all our guys make it all the way through, I think we have a chance to do something really special and, and show a lot of people um, that that this team is back to, to where they should be. What's realistic? Is is, is is playoffs, Super Bowl, what are we talking? What's realistic? Oh, playoffs are very realistic. Um, you know, anything can happen once you get in. But, uh, you know, it takes a team. It takes guys being focused for, for 16 games to get a chance at the tournament. So that's what we're focused on now, but you got to take it a day at a time. Hey, Richard, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to join me. Lots of luck this season, and thanks for being my guest today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. And so a special thanks to Booger McFarlane as he gets ready to broadcast his first Monday night football game, Monday night Rams at Raiders, which also happens to be the first game for John Gruden, the former Monday night football color commentator as the new Oakland Raiders head coach. And a special thanks to 49ers cornerback Richard Sherman as San Francisco gets ready to head to Minnesota to open its season at Minnesota against Kirk Cousins and the Vikings. We'll be back again next week on another Adam Schefter podcast when my co-author of The Man I Never Met, Michael Rosenberg, the great writer from Sports Illustrated, joins me for an intimate conversation about the book that we put together that's being released this week, The Man I Never Met. Thanks for listening today, everybody.